tonight's reading is taken from Luke chapter 15 verses 1 to 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
So when I found out I was going to be speaking on Luke 15, I got pretty excited. The prodigal son, it's a big one. Um, I think it was mainly because I'd finally found a use for my A-level RE, but I also think it's fair to say that this is one of the most well-known and actually well-liked parts of the whole Bible. Whether you're a Christian or not, there's a fair to good chance that this is among your favorite teachings of Jesus. And I can't blame you, it's one of mine too. But maybe you're a bit like myself. You see, for the longest time, I had what you might call an A-level RE understanding at best as to the full weight of what Jesus is actually saying here, because this is scandalous, right? I mean, this is the type of teaching that got Jesus killed, okay? You don't kill the guy who can heal the sick and raise the dead. Uh, you want to keep that guy alive, unless you reckon there's a very good reason to. And I think for the Jews, this might have been it. You see, when I used to think of this parable, and I don't know if there's anyone who thinks along similar lines, I used to think that Jesus's audience was as warm and receptive to this parable as I was. I used to think that Jesus's audience was made up of largely the same sorts of people, men and women with tears in their eyes who were just so moved and touched by what Jesus was saying. But in reality, Jesus is speaking to an incredibly diverse group of people, among whom are the people who ultimately plotted his death. And these guys, the Pharisees, as well as everyone else present, their entire worldviews are about to be completely flipped. But before we get there, um, we should read verses one and two together to get some context as to who's actually gathered here to listen to Jesus, because I think it's important for understanding the passage. So why don't we read verses one and two together? If you've got your Bibles, read along with me. Verse one. Now the sinners, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So do you see the two groups? You've got the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So let's take group one, tax collectors and sinners. In other words, the morally corrupt, the morally questionable. That's everything from the uh, little white lies, I can get away with it as long as no one's looking kind of people, all the way to um, tax collectors, prostitutes, the, the people who were seen as the, the scum of society, the, the most morally reprehensible, degenerate dirtbags, right? That's the kind of people we're talking about here. Then on the other side, you've got group number two. We have the Pharisees. If you can imagine the polar opposite of that, <laughs> they were well-kept, well-respected. They had lots of knowledge, morally untouchable. Not only did they keep the rules of the land, but they also had their own rules on top of the rules. These guys loved rules. Not only did they know their Bibles, but they had the Torah. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had that word for word, verbatim, memorized. Okay, I barely made it through Numbers. Okay, they were more holy than the best person you know, and they knew it. So can you imagine this crowd? This is who Jesus is speaking to. We've got the religious elite and the morally bankrupt. The in crowd, and the out crowd, the Pharisees and the sinners. And the Pharisees don't like the fact that the sinners are here. They don't like it one bit. Verse two tells us they're grumbling. I probably would have used the word yapping, uh, but they're, they're grumbling that sinners are being drawn to Jesus. And if you're a Christian, for you, that would be unthinkable. But this is what the worldview of the Pharisees does. Because they kept the law so well, because they were so sure that they were okay with God, based on what they did and based on who they were. People like tax collectors and sinners, they had no place being here. 
let alone eating with Jesus. In fact, according to their worldview, Jesus's reputation was tarnished by even associating himself with such people. But Jesus is about to take that worldview, completely disassemble it, and reconstruct a better one. So with that picture painted, with Jesus' audience in mind, why don't we get into the story? So we're starting at verse 11. Do read along with me. Verse 11, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So here we meet the younger son. He goes to his father and demands his share of the property, or some of your translations will say inheritance. Um, Now, the disturbance that this guy's request would have brought Jesus's listeners is largely lost on us if we're not reading carefully. So let me ask you this. When do people usually get an inheritance? When someone dies? This son has basically approached his father and told him, I wish you were dead. It'd be much better for me if you were dead. Just give me your money, give me your stuff. Let me get out of your life and you'll be out of mine. It's a shocking request. It's shameful. As, as the younger son, his share was probably about a third and the older two thirds. So he's pretty much asking his stuff to sell all his possessions, liquidate his property and give him a third of the money that he made. I mean, it's a request that would have been unheard of, right? In, in first century Jewish culture. It reflects this sense of entitlement that any father worth his salt would have punished by slapping him silly. And not just slapping him silly, probably taking him out onto the street and flogging him publicly. As the youngest son of a family in the first century, you don't get to demand anything from your dad, let alone a third of everything. And as if the request wasn't shocking enough, the father's response is even more astonishing. Here it is. Okay, here you go. You want my money? Take it, it's yours. I mean, what? If I went to my dad and asked him for a third of everything he owned, he'd kind of look at me for a second like, you're joking, right? And then when he realized it was being serious, he'd say, I catch yourself on. That's because my dad's nice and he doesn't get the belt out too often. If an ancient Middle Eastern father was asked, as I say, you'd likely probably be kicked out of the house and not without a tremendous beating. But this father says, all right, you want my money? Take it. It's yours. This father gives up not only the huge amount of wealth that he had, but also his own honor, because the Pharisees would have looked at that and said, weak. Let's keep reading. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So this son uh, with his newfound wealth departs for a distant country. He wants nothing to do with his family, nothing to do with his father, no hindrances to his so-called freedom, He wants to live his life in complete rejection of and rebellion against his father. And he wants to do that in a distant country. So that's out of the Jewish land of Israel and into a Gentile or pagan country filled with idolatry and all sorts of sin. And for the Pharisees, just the height of uncleanness. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. He spent all of it, most likely on gambling and hookers and sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that this wealth accumulated by the father, probably over generations, a third of it gone like that because of his wasteful son. 
but he doesn't care. I mean, he's having the time of his life. He's doing absolutely everything he ever wanted to do, right? He's fulfilling every desire and pleasure he ever wanted fulfilled. He should be living in paradise, right? Living the dream, living his best life. <laughs> Not quite. It starts to go south pretty quickly for the son in verse 14. And surprise, surprise, the, the money runs out and he's left with nothing. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When it all comes to an end and the party's over and the pocket empties, he finds himself doing probably one of the most degrading and humiliating things that a Jew could find himself doing. He's taking care of pigs. And for us, that's bad enough. But for a Jew, pigs aren't clean. Pigs aren't kosher. Not only is he taking care of the pigs, he's jealous of them because pigs get to eat and he doesn't. Safe to say he's in a bit of a rut. And it's right here that we see the first way that God's grace is shown in this parable, strangely enough. It's obviously no surprise that when we talk about the Father in the parable, we're talking about God, and, and you're probably thinking, grace? I mean, boy's at the end of himself, where, where's the grace? Here's the grace. God, in his infinite wisdom, often lets us come to the end of ourselves so that we realize two things. One, we'll realize that the world, with all that it offers, sin, pleasure, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, it isn't all it's cracked up to be, is it? Two, we'll realize our desperate need of him. So Romans 1 talks about the, the wrath of God against people who rebel against him, kind of like the son has done against his father. And one of the ways that it's revealed is that God hands people over to themselves and gives them exactly what they want. Go nuts. Kind of like the, the father in this story. Oh, you want my money? Take it. And, and the son exhausts himself trying to satisfy his deepest longings by running after pleasure, after pleasure, after pleasure, after pleasure. And where does, where does he end up? Oh yeah, that's right. In a pig, uh, in a pit <laughs> with a bunch of pigs. And for many of us, it, it takes being in that pit with those pigs for us to come to our senses, to swallow our pride and realize how desperately we need God. And that's exactly what happens to the son in this story. Let's read from verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So verse 17, the son remembers that his father's hired servants have food to spare. What does that mean? It means that he remembers that his father is generous. His father is compassionate to those who are poor. He is loving, he is gracious, he is good. And he realizes how wrong he was to ever reject him, let alone wish death upon him. And so he starts practicing his speech. When I was about 13, 
Um, my sister and I got into a bit of a row with mum. I can't quite remember what it was about, but it seemed important enough at the time to the point where we decided we were going to pack our things and leave home. That, that's it. I've had enough. The, the teenage angst was flowing through my veins at that age. Uh, what we didn't anticipate was that my mother began to help us pack. <laughs> you see, my mum's very smart and she knew that we just wanted attention and we had no real intention of leaving. But I am very stubborn and I will follow my actions through no matter how ridiculous. So as I walked down the driveway with my sister, mum standing at the doorstep waving us off, bye. Dad in the living room wetting himself. Um, I realised that I'm eventually going to reach the end of the driveway and I'm not really going to know what to do after that. So as my sister and I, uh, we, we hide behind the bush so mum can't see us, we start to formulate a plan for going back and we start rehearsing our lines. Uh, what do we say? Oh, you thought we were actually leaving? Ha, <laughs> gotcha. I think what we went with in the end was it, it's not a very good day to leave today, which was, you know, creative brilliance on my part. Um, but this son's speech was a little bit better than mine. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So in other words, I know I can't be your son anymore, but please just let me back in. I'll do what it takes to pay you back. I'll, I'll earn my way back in. Don't even, I won't even live in the house. Let me sleep out with your servants. Uh, I'll work and I'll work and I'll work until I make this right. Because that's all he knew. That's what you get when you're living in the worldview of the Pharisees. Work. Earn it back. Earn it by working at minimum wage for however many years it takes. And then maybe, maybe there'll be reconciliation in the family. So why don't we press pause? Remember those two groups at the beginning, the, the Pharisees and the sinners. What do you think the sinners are thinking about where Jesus is heading? Oh, okay. He's talking about what it looks like to pay back God. Okay, so what? I'm, I'm now a slave. I have to earn God's favor. What, what's this going to cost? They think he's talking about penance, repaying God back for their sins. What about the Pharisees? Preach it, mate. Yeah, bring it home. All excited about the son being humiliated, punished, flogged, having to repay his debt. They're, they're probably expecting an hour-long sermon from Jesus on exactly what this son's going to have to do in order to win his father's love. Show these good-for-nothings the door, Jesus. Tell them there's no way back in. But what actually happens? It's startling, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So here comes his son, stinking like pigs, smelling like death, having wished death upon him. He's dirty. He's half dead. He's not even in the village yet. And the father spots him trotting down the road, head down, rehearsing his lines. What does that tell you, by the way, that the father spotted him? It means that he was waiting, looking for him to return. And the father runs, he sprints towards him. Jewish men don't run in this society. It's, it's, not, it's shameful. 
to lift your robe and reveal your legs. He doesn't care about that. He's full speed through the village, legs on show and all, just running towards the sun. And if I'm the sun at this point, you know, I'm putting myself in the sun's shoes. I'm bracing myself for impact, right? I'm expecting the beating of my life. Right? It's not good news, or at least I don't think so, that the father's running towards me. But guess what? He threw his arms not at him, around him, and he hugs him, and he kisses him, and the son's trying to get the words out, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Forget that. I'm having none of it. Hey, get him a, get him a clean robe and a ring, kill the fattest calf, get him a steak, strike up the band. We're having a party. We're having a party because my son was dead, and now he's alive. The father pours even more grace on his dirty, sinful, stinking son by dressing him in his best clean robes and putting the family ring on his finger. What a God. Wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Where's the beating? There is none, Pharisees. Where's the repayment plan? Where's the punishment? There is no repayment plan and there is no punishment. You have to feel the outrage, don't you, of the Pharisees? This is obscene. This is disgraceful. This is against everything that they thought they knew. How can there be no reparation or punishment for this guy in the Pharisees' worldview? Well, the Pharisees' worldview is missing grace. And this is the absolute scandal of grace. That even for the worst of the worst of the worst, a truly repentant, humble heart is enough to have our good God forgive them. And not only that, it's enough to have our good God delight to forgive them and run towards them and celebrate their return. Not, not because of any redeemable quality whatsoever in them, but out of the generosity and kindness and goodness and grace of God. Grace truly is amazing, isn't it? However, not everybody likes grace. There's one character in the story we haven't met yet. Let's have a peek inside this party. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. So here Jesus introduces us to the older son. And he's been here the whole time doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's working away in the field. He's the good kid. And all of a sudden, he hears music from the party, calls the servant down, he's like, what's going on? And the servant tells him, your brother's home. And you might ask, should he not have already known? <laughs> should the father not have told him already and invited him to the party? He had no relationship with his father. But he was there the whole time. He stayed at home. Yeah, he was around. The young, wild, and free lifestyle of the younger son wasn't really his thing. His preference was the sin of religious hypocrisy, as we will soon see. And he was just as lost as his younger brother. So verse 28, he becomes angry. He's furious. Dude won't even go in, right? He has to get his father to come out and try to get him to join the party. Remember the Pharisees in verse 2, grumbling and yapping because Jesus received sinners and ate with them? Here they are in the story, in the character of the younger brother. 
sorry, in the character of the older brother. And the older brother says, verse 29, look. Notice that even the younger son used father to address his dad when he was wishing death upon him. I mean, have a little respect. This guy goes, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You see that word? Verse 29, slaving. That's the heart of it right there. That is the heart of the Pharisees' worldview, slavery. That's the heart of the worldview that says, I must climb my way to God, slavery. I've been working my butt off for you and I've done all this for you and I've done this and I've done that and I've got a big fat pile of nothing to show for it. Rules, 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 rules. I've followed the rules my whole life and I don't get anything from you. That's because this older son doesn't know his father. He doesn't know that he's generous and kind and good and gracious. He doesn't know that he delights to forgive sinners like the younger son, sinners like him. He doesn't know the first thing about him. He's lived in his house all these years, doesn't know the first thing about him. He just wants the stuff his father has, just like the younger son. But the father responds, verse 31, my son. Do you hear the tenderness in that? The son says, look. The father says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. You see, the same compassion and grace the father showed to the younger brother is also available for the older brother. It's for the Pharisee, just as it is for the prostitute. It's for the religious imposter, just as it is for the rebellious idiot. Listen, maybe you reckon you're too far gone, I get it. But this grace is so far reaching that even the worst sinner ever portrayed by Jesus could be covered by it. Him and this stupid brother. Whether you're the tax collector or the sinner or the Pharisee, or the religious hypocrite, and maybe you're like me and you're all of the above at times. The grace of God invites you in. So who are you in this story? I don't mean what type of sinner you are, that's irrelevant because we're all sinners. I mean, what's your response to grace? Because there's only two. Humble, joyful acceptance, like the younger brother, or rejection like the older brother? Are you inside at the party or outside trying to earn what you can't? We just celebrated Easter last week and maybe you're wondering why it is that Christians make such a big deal out of it. This is why. Jesus's death and resurrection on the cross means that just as the younger son, in spite of everything that he was, everything that he did, could be saved. So can we, in spite of everything that we are and everything that we've done. Just as the younger son could be clothed in the perfectly clean robes the father gave him, so we can be clothed in our sin in the spotless perfection of Jesus. 
because he takes our sin upon himself and he dresses us with his perfection through his death on the cross. And all it takes is an acknowledgement that you're not all you crack yourself up to be. You're not as good as the older brother thought he was. And you're certainly not as good as the Pharisees thought they were. In fact, if we're being straight, we're pretty far off it, aren't we? We simply turn away from our rejection of God and we turn back towards him. And rest assured, he will run towards us with arms outstretched, ready to meet us and invite us in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace shown to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. We were in the pit because of our sin and rejection of you, and yet you made a way for us to come home. We didn't deserve rescue, and yet you rescued us. You spared us from the punishment due to us. All by grace, not because we're good, but because you are good, Lord. We are so sorry for our sin. Help us to accept your grace, to be clothed in your royal robes, and then with every day, understand your grace more and more and be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. We love you, Lord, but you love us so much more than we can even imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.